Welcome to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of January 14th, 2024, as always from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side, which fortunately is not under aerial bombardment. We're going to be taking a little break from the horrific events on the world stage in this rant to go deep into history and discuss a new book, an extremely impressive book that I just received and read, Resistance to Christianity, a Chronological Encyclopedia of Heresy from the Beginning to the 18th Century by Raoul Vanagem, translated from the French by Bill Brown, and newly released by an imprint called Eris, perhaps slightly misleadingly entitled, but um, more about that later. Raoul Vanagem, many listeners will recall, as a key figure in the Situationists, an intellectual and artistic movement associated with the May 1968 student and worker uprising in Paris, which both drew from and was critical of both Marxism and anarchism, but has um, definitely been taken up by anarchists since the formal dissolution of the Situationist International in 1972. The better known of the two principal figures in the Situationist International was Guy Debord, who wrote the group's defining manifesto, Society of the Spectacle, a kind of rant about the role of mass media distraction in social alienation and commodity fetishism. Debord committed suicide in 1994, which some members of his fan club have actually found admirable, like he was that committed to the vision of imminent revolution that obsessed him in 68, that when it didn't happen, he no longer had anything to live for. He was unwilling to settle for anything less. But to me, society of the spectacle is a tad obscurantist, like a lot of continental philosophers. Debord seems to have had a fetish for incomprehensibility. To my mind, Vanagem's lesser-known and certainly less widely available manifesto, which also came out in 1967, was the more accessible and powerful of the two, and I think the one that actually worked better as a revolutionary tract. This was published in the original French under the ironical title I'll say it in English, I won't attempt to pronounce the French, Treatise on Good Manners for the Use of Younger Generations. (laughs) This as radical youth were smashing windows in Paris, of course, but is uh, better known by the title of its English translation, The Revolution of Everyday Life, which is really one of my favorite phrases because it implies not only a transcending beyond mere issues to a vision of total transformation of the structure of society down to the most intimate and quotidian level, 
but also the ethic that revolution cannot be a mere change of masters, that it is meaningless if it doesn't overturn the power relations that govern daily lived reality. I'm going to give you uh, just a little taste the opening passage of his chapter 5, The Decline and Fall of Work. In an industrial society which confuses work and productivity, the necessity of producing has always been an enemy of the desire to create. What spark of humanity, of a possible creativity, can remain alive in a being dragged out of sleep at six every morning, jolted about in suburban trains, deafened by the racket of machinery, bleached and steamed by meaningless sounds and gestures, spun dry by statistical controls, and tossed out at the end of the day into the entrance halls of railway stations, those cathedrals of departure for the hell of weekdays and the nugatory paradise of weekends where the crowd communes in weariness and boredom. From adolescence to retirement, each 24-hour cycle repeats the same shattering bombardment like bullets hitting a window. Mechanical repetition, time as money, submission to bosses, boredom, exhaustion. From the butchering of youth's energy to the gaping wound of old age, Life cracks in every direction under the blows of forced labor. Never before has a civilization reached such a degree of contempt for life. Never before has a generation drowned in mortification felt such a rage to live. The same people who are murdered slowly in the mechanized slaughterhouses of work are also arguing, singing, drinking, dancing, making love, taking the streets, picking up weapons, and inventing a new poetry. Already, the front against forced labor is being formed. Its elements of refusal are molding the consciousness of the future. Every call for productivity in the conditions chosen by capitalist or Soviet economy is a call to slavery. End quote. Fuck yeah! Now, it certainly sounds very 1968, a tad utopian from today's perspective, and especially in looking to automation and cybernetics as a force that can either serve the bosses or liberate the workers. Well, it's certainly clear today how that's worked out. Many of us, myself included, no longer even have the damn privilege of taking commuter trains to an oppressive office or factory because we've been replaced by robots, whether on the factory floors or, as in my case, the computer cubicles, and are left scrounging a dime off the damn internet. And speaking of which, please subscribe to this podcast. But still, insightful stuff, even today insightful, both uh, with a C-I-T and an S-I-G-H-T. <clears throat> the Revolution of Everyday Life by Raoul Vanagen, 1967. Now, since the Situationist International was dissolved, and the board, at least, declared Situationism dead, 
those influenced by the situationists, chiefly in the anarchist milieu, have called themselves post-situationists. Post-situationism, definitely had an influence on the punk movement. There's been much hype about situationist influence on the Sex Pistols, particularly in the book Lipstick Traces by Greil Marcus. But to tell you the truth, I don't really see it. But definitely in the Gang of Four, another ironical name, the real intellectual band from the British punk scene. And uh, post-situationism was a significant current in the Libertarian Book Club, the New York anarchist institution I've long been involved in, although it has been rather moribund for the past decade or so. And that's libertarian in the sense of libertarian socialist, not libertarian capitalist, I always have to explain today. And the Belgian-born Vanagon is um, still alive today and continues to write. He certainly proved far more prolific than his better-known former comrade de Borde. And his extremely large 1994 book, some 750 pages, including endnotes, La Résistance au Christianisme, is now available in English thanks to the efforts of Bill Brown. This is definitely a book with a thesis, but unlike many such books, it does the hard work of showing through voluminous and meticulously organized fact rather than merely propounding, this thesis being that religious heresies in the realm of Christendom were an essential precursor to the revolutionary movements and ideologies of the modern era. The original title in the French was The Heresies from Their Origins Through the 18th Century, but I can understand why Bill Brown changed it to a chronological encyclopedia of heresy, because it's definitely encyclopedic in scope, much more so than any previous works on this thesis, of which there have been a few. I should mention a couple of important precursor books. First, The Pursuit of the Millennium, Revolutionary Millenarians and Mystical Anarchists of the Middle Ages, by Norman Cohn, Revised Edition, 1970, and The World Turned Upside Down, Radical Ideas During the English Revolution, by Christopher Hill, 1991, the latter really being a kind of a sequel to the former. I should also mention two books on Gnosticism that draw an explicit parallel to modern anarchism, and especially nihilism, the Gnostics by Jacques Le Carré, 1973, and The Tree of Gnosis by Ione P. Culiano, who, by the way, seems to have been assassinated on campus at the University of Chicago in 1991, the year before his book came out, by agents of the Romanian secret police, a testament to the power even of such seemingly esoteric ideas. I should also mention Murray Bookchin, who in his The Ecology of Freedom, 1982, his most important book in my opinion, traces what he calls the West's legacy of freedom 
juxtaposed to the legacy of domination in a lineage from the medieval Gnostics to the Protestant Reformation and Enlightenment, and then to the millennial Christian movements of the English Civil War period and the revolutionary currents they inspired, and then to the radical mysticism of William Blake, to the American and French revolutions, abolitionist and contemporary progressive and liberatory currents, such as anarchism. And finally, I should also mention my late friend, Peter Lamborn Wilson, who also touched on some of these ideas, most especially in his final book, Peacock Angel, The Esoteric Tradition of the Yazidis, which we discussed on our podcast of New Year's Eve 2022. But this whole trajectory is mapped out by Vanagem in dauntingly exacting detail. It must have taken him years to write and years for Bill Brown to translate. And the translation seems to have been done the right way, old school, by an organic human brain and not by robots. And, uh, Resistance to Christianity definitely merits becoming as much of a classic as the other titles I mentioned. Vanagem starts with the anti-imperialist ferment 2,000 years ago in Roman Palestine, which gave birth to Christianity, famously, but less so to a plethora of rival factions that have generally come under the broad category of Gnosticism, sometimes influenced by Persian Manichaeism. And interestingly, Vanagem's very opening discussion on the very first pages is about something very much in the news at the moment, anti-Semitism. He uses that word, even though in this case it's something of an anachronism. That term was really invented in the 19th century by the pseudo-scientific anti-Semites who represented the backlash to Jewish emancipation, rather than the religious Jew hatred of the long centuries before Jewish emancipation. But there was obviously a continuity between the two, whatever pseudo-scientific garb the latter anti-Semitism resorted to. Vanagem also uses the term pogroms, today associated with massacre of Jews, to describe the massacres of Jews at the hands of Roman authorities, ostensibly to eradicate Christianity or its rival sects in Damascus, Caesarea, Ashkelon, Scythopolis, Nipos, Gadara, Yet, of course, in subsequent centuries, the Christians, and even sometimes heretics in their zealotry, would massacre Jews, who Vanagem calls a nation sacrificed to history, an all-too-evocative phrase. Vanagem runs through these early heretical sects, many attributed to the influence of Simon Magus, a contemporary of the Apostles, including the Ebionites, the Marcionites, the Basilidians, the Nassenes, the Ophites, the Carpocratians, the Elkassaites, the Bardysonites, and the Eukites, or Messalians, 
Then we get to the more well-known ones that gained a following in Europe in the later Roman period, spreading along with and rivaling canonical Christianity, including the followers of Arianism and the Pelagians. A few centuries later, we come to the three most famous Gnostic heresies of medieval Europe, the Paulicians, and the two which actually had organized societies and their own states for a while, the Bogomils of the Balkans and the Cathars or Albigensians in France, both crushed by Catholic crusades in the 13th century, although the Alumbrados in Spain may have represented a survival of this tradition into the 15th century, only finally eradicated in the Inquisition. And then we reach the point where we can see so-called heresies as early harbingers of the Protestant Reformation, including the Lollards, followers of John Wycliffe in 14th century England, and the Waldensians of Peter Waldo in France and Italy, there was a strong populist element to both. The Lollards famously defied church authorities by translating the Bible into English so it could actually be read by the common people, or at least those privileged enough among the common people to be able to read at all. And the Waldensians preached voluntary poverty as the way to salvation, obviously also a rejection of the corpulent priestly class. And for this, the Waldensians were persecuted with considerable bloodshed. This period also sees the English Peasants' Revolt of 1381, led by the radical priest John Ball of Colchester, and the Guglielmites in northern Italy, founded by the Bohemian princess Guglielma, which, of course, is the female and Italian equivalent of William, my name. So I am extremely honored to share my name with a medieval heresy. And in southern Italy, the Joachimites, followers of Joachim of Fiore, a Calabrian abbot who foretold imminent apocalypse to bring about the kingdom of heaven, a part of what Vanagem calls the millenarian tendency, some of Joachim's followers would actually look to the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II as a new messiah because he had been excommunicated from the church and was at war with the Pope and being demonized by Rome as the Antichrist. Then we come to those who, rightly or wrongly, because much that we know about heresies generally has been written by their persecutors, have been portrayed as libertines. The Amalricians and their successors, the Brethren of the Free Spirit, who gained quite a following in Northern Europe and were said to have advocated free love and return of society to a state of Edenic innocence, Vanagem seems to accept that the extremely psychedelic Dutch artist Aronimus Bosch was a follower of the Brethren of the Free Spirit, and a scene from his painting, The Garden of Earthly Delights, adorns the cover of the book, 
although I think a lot of scholars contest that this was true. Of similar bent were the Adamites and the Familists, followers of the so-called Family of Love, now quite obviously leading up to the Reformation, were the Hussites and their successors, the Taborites in Bohemia, who actually led an armed uprising against the Holy Roman Empire, by then long since reconciled with the Pope, and the Taborite military leader, John Ziska, is today a Czech national hero. And then we have the massive episode of the German Peasants' War of 1524, which definitely had a spiritual and millennial aspect to it, especially in the person of the revolutionary priest Thomas Munzer, a contemporary of Martin Luther, who disavowed him and saw him as far too radical. And then we jump forward to what can be seen as the big climax of the story, the English Revolution of 1649 and the subsequent decade and change of English Civil War, which traditional histories have portrayed merely as a contest between the roundheads and the cavaliers, that is, the modernist supporters of Oliver Cromwell and his parliament, versus the reactionary monarchist restorationists. But thanks to the research of Christopher Hill, we today know a great deal more about the truly revolutionary currents around the levelers and diggers who would do away with the aristocracy completely and redistribute their lands to the commoners. We discussed some of this in our podcast of October 16th, 2018, entitled Libertarian Socialism, Not an Oxymoron. Vanagem especially discusses the ranters, my personal favorites, of course, who really were the anarchists of their day, rejecting the morality of the church and the laws of the state in favor of a fervent libertinism. More long-livid were the Puritans and Quakers, who also came out of this same ferment, and who we know well on our side of the Atlantic. But after this episode, which of course ended with the restoration of the monarchy and much of the old order in 1660, the libertines, nonconformists, iconoclasts, millennialists, anabaptists, and antinomians of the period, as they were variously called, started to become openly secular revolutionaries. Vanagin particularly notes the German firebrand Matthias Knutzen, who was an outright atheist, perhaps the first to call himself one, and who Vanagin sees as an intellectual harbinger of the French Revolution, which is where he ends his story, saying that it brought about the fall of God after which liberatory movements no longer had to resort to the vocabulary and iconography of religion. And even in a, uh, a new afterword for this edition, Vanagam doesn't really rethink that, seeing the world as moving beyond religion, quote-unquote. Now, this brings us to the current day. Certainly, religion, and especially Christianity, in its most reactionary manifestation, got a new lease on life in the United States 
in the 1980s. It's lost some ground since then, what with the new atheist movement and so on. But evangelical Protestantism, ironically, from the point of view of Vanagon's historical sweep, remains a force of deep reaction and a pillar of Trumpism in the contemporary U.S., and could be even more of a ticket holder in the American regime than it was in the Reagan era if El Pendejo were to regain the White House this year, a possibility by no means to be dismissed. <clears throat> and Vanagam very eloquently described the tendency that manifests as Trumpism in the U.S. and as Le Pen in France and the British National Party in the UK, etc., in a 2011 essay, or rant, entitled No Borders, No Papers, which I will briefly read from. For citizens frightened by the rise of unemployment, the lowering of purchasing power, the rise of precarity, the state names some dangerous groups that will serve to reroute the anger and aggression that would otherwise be directed against the corrupt exploiters that govern us. Anything is permitted to keep up the smokescreen that masks the real problems. A criminal nationalism tries to pit one group against the others. A shifty xenophobia aims to identify people of Arab descent as Islamic terrorists. It turns into anti-Semitism, the legitimate opposition to the anti-Palestinian politics of the Israeli government. It works to oppose unemployed workers and undocumented migrants. It does not hesitate to resemble the Nazis in the way it despises and treats gypsies, Ram, and other travelers. The state does everything to hinder a true solidarity between have-nots struck by precarity, and those who still enjoy a little bit of good existence, but who will lose this security if they do not accept the fate that awaits them. It is this solidarity that we need to restore, and it is to this solidarity to which we appeal when we defend undocumented migrants, the unemployed, movements that fight the cuts in public transportation, education, healthcare, postal services, primary industries, and agriculture. We will defend the poetry of life against the laws of profit that degrade life. End quote. Very good. So I think that resistance to Christianity may be a title more relevant for the contemporary era than Vanagon himself realized. Now, I do actually question the appropriateness of this title to a degree, because I'm not sure that the heretics of the Christian era always saw themselves as resisting Christianity. I think in many cases, they saw themselves as defending true Christianity against its corruption and perversion in the form of the Church of Rome. Oh, this was clearly less the case as we approach the modern era. Whereas if Trumpism regains power in the U.S., a Christianity seeking retribution, Trump's favorite word now, 
For recent advances in free thinking and acceptance of sexual deviance and the like may really be an element of state power, as it was in the clerical fascist regimes of Francisco Franco in Spain and Antipavlich in Croatia, then in Catholic rather than Protestant form, though here in the U.S., it's the evangelicals we really have to worry about. So uh, this history, as obscure as much of it seems for contemporary readers, is well worth chewing on. Thank you very much for uh, translating it. Bill Brown, Resistance to Christianity, a chronological encyclopedia of heresy from the beginning to the 18th century by Raoul Vanagem, newly released from Eris and distributed by Columbia University Press. If you want to go really deep, this has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time. <laughs>